Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? I'm Brandy. And I'm Rachel. And we are part of the Haunted Visions Podcast. And you're listening to History Goes Bump. Enjoy! the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 245th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we're bringing you another one of our Haunted Cemeteries episodes. This is number eight. Who would have thunk there were so many Haunted Cemeteries, Denise? Um, I know I wouldn't have. I laugh every time I think about how often we used to protest when people would say that all these cemeteries were haunted and we were like, oh, there's not that many out there. And why would a ghost haunt a cemetery and hang out with a bunch of dead people? And then as I keep digging around, I keep finding them. So they're definitely out there. Yes, because there's enough to make at least eight episodes. And I'm guessing we're probably going to have a few more. Before we get into that, Denise, we have some more people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, which rolled over 1,500 members this week. Oh, that is fantastic. That is amazing. If you are a listener and you have not joined us in the Spooktacular crew, you have no idea what you are missing. Please come on over and join us. We have a great time in there. We consider each other family. We'd love to have you hang out with us. We want to welcome Vicky with an IE. Hello, Vicky with an IE. Lucy Ann with an I. Hey, Lucy Ann with an I. Amber. Hey, Amber. Bobby, who spells her name with an IE. Hello, Bobby with an IE. Tim. Hey, Tim. Meredith. Hi, Meredith. Barb. Hi, Barb. Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Gabriella. Hey, Gabriella. Tara. Hi, Tara. Tina. Hello, Tina. Jenny Ann with a Y. Hey, Jenny Ann with a Y. Bob. Hi, Bob. Manny, whose last name is Ramirez. So everybody was like, do we have a baseball legend hanging out with us? So hello, Manny Ramirez. (laughs) Juliana. Hey, Juliana. And Tanya. Hi, Tanya. And now, this moment, Naughty. Maps dating back to the 1700s document Isla Bermeja just off the Yucatan Peninsula's coast. While many islands are important to the country that owns them for tourism, Bermeja Island was important to Mexico because it extended its reach for drilling for oil and would stop the United States' encroachment on Mexico's oil drilling industry. As one can imagine, this caused some friction. So when the island just disappeared in the 1990s, all kinds of conspiracy theories erupted about how the CIA had something to do with the disappearance. These suspicions arose because important documents containing a treaty regarding major oil reserves within the island's region disappeared as well. 
The disappearance of Isla Bermeja greatly reduced what had been Mexico's 200 nautical mile limit. The theory that was running around about how an island could disappear left many wondering if the CIA blew up the island, which measured 31 square miles. But can you really blow up an island? Researchers looking back at the old maps noticed Bermeja Island was found on historical maps between 1535 and 1775. But after that, it disappeared from the maps until 1857, when a U.S. map once again included it. When the treaty was written up in the 1970s, nobody really verified that the island existed when it was used as a border. A Navy fishing expedition reported the island missing in 1997. This causes us all to wonder if the island ever actually did exist, and that certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history. of February on the 2nd in 1949, the first 45 RPM vinyl record was released. Prior to 1948, records were made of shellac and rotated at 75 RPM. Record companies like Columbia Records and RCA Victor knew they needed to innovate, and in 1948, Columbia Records unveiled the 33 and a third RPM long playing record, commonly known as an LP, and it was made of vinyl. The vinyl was durable and much quieter. LPs played for about 20 minutes on each side. RCA decided they needed something else, and they developed the 45 RPM record and released it in 1949. These were smaller records measuring 7 inches and came in a variety of colors to differentiate between genres. Popular releases were on standard black vinyl while country could be found on green, R&B and gospel were on orange, classical was on red, children's records were on yellow, and international recordings were on blue. The 45's popularity soared because its size made it portable. This popularity would last for 40 years, until the cassette tape and eventually the CD and the MP3 player started making music more portable. We have fond memories of playing our 45's on little record players, and those of us from older generations know that a spider is not just a nasty arachnid, but they also were inserts that could be placed in the middle of a 45 so they could be played on a standard turntable. Most 45's ran between 2 and 5 minutes. In 1968, John Lennon asked George Martin, the Beatles' music producer at the time, what was the maximum length of playtime that a 45 could handle? After some experimenting, Martin decided the answer was 7 minutes, 11 seconds. And thus, the playing time of Hey Jude. Much of a town's history can be found in its cemeteries. The granite and marble slabs carry the names of the people who founded and built the town and those who have called it home throughout the years. Some of the memorials are simple and some are very grand, but each one represents a person who was important to someone. Cemeteries are beautiful and peaceful, but sometimes that quiet is broken by the supernatural. Some cemeteries are haunted, and we are going to look at several of them. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Bee Spring Cemetery in Tennessee. Heart Island Cemetery in the Bronx, Old Berkeley Cemetery in Virginia, and La Nordia Cemetery in Chile. 
First up, we have Bee Spring Cemetery, and this was suggested by Jacob Gray. This is one of those smaller cemeteries that's more of a local cemetery, and there's not a whole lot of information out there about it. But we dug in to see what we could find. This cemetery is found in Giles County, Tennessee. Giles County is located in the south-central part of the state and is named after William Branch Giles. Giles sponsored the admission of Tennessee as the 16th state into the Union when he was serving as a senator for the state of Virginia at that time. So I could see why they wanted to honor him with a county. If he helped you to become a state, I guess you'd want to name something after him for sure. That's only 15. His support grew to also sponsoring the building of the city and courthouse, which is burned an amazing four times. Can you imagine having to rebuild your courthouse that many times? That would make me start to wonder if we were supposed to be having a courthouse. Either that or the crime has gotten way out of hand. Yeah, there's some bad luck for that courthouse. And I believe the one that's standing today was built in 1906, and it's been okay since then. It does kind of make me wonder if some of those earlier courthouses were made out of wood, and maybe that's why they burned more. I don't know. Bee Spring Cemetery was established in 1816, and there are around 200 burials here. Let's look at some of the people who've made this their final resting place. Annie Bass was born in 1846 in Alabama. Everybody called her Blackie. She had six children and died when she was 92 in 1938 at her home in the Bunker Hill vicinity. Nancy Jane Cryer Beard died in 1897, and her tombstone is inscribed with, Since thou can no longer stay, to cheer me with thy love, I hope to meet with thee again in yon bright world above. Twenty-six members of the Beddingfield family are here. Box tombs are found in many cemeteries, and one of them at Bee Springs belongs to Sarah Boyce. They are sometimes called chest tombs, and they date back to medieval times. The box is above the ground, and the body of the deceased is buried beneath it, rather than in the box. The advantage of this type of memorial is that they can be seen better than headstones, and there are five surfaces for decoration. So for those of you who want something a little bit more elaborate, where you can put all kinds of great cemetery symbology on it, this is something you'd want to go for. Although I don't think they do this in our more modern era anymore. I don't know, because when we went to do Cemetery Bingo, there was those really, really pretty marbled, what we thought were kind of like crypts, tombs. I wonder if that's what that was, because they were inscribed, member all the way around, but they were made of marble. That's what made them look different than the stone. Oh, you're right. Some of the box ones are more of a rectangular kind of going up above the ground, almost in the way a tombstone would, but a little bit bigger. But then some of the other pictures I saw, they're definitely as if the coffin was above the ground. We had wondered when we saw those, I believe that was at Greenwood Cemetery, right? Right, when we went over to do the cemetery bingo with mom and dad. We wondered if the bodies were buried in those, so more than likely they were not, and they were somewhere underneath. And we just thought that they were an interesting kind of smaller crypt or vault, and I bet that's what they were, box tombs. Oh, we'll have to check that out. Yeah. The cemetery gives some an odd feeling. A person going by just the letter J on the Angel Fire website wrote, Okay, we heard about this church cemetery just over the Tennessee line. The story we were told was nothing big, just that if you took a camera there, you could use the flash to see orbs floating around the church. We tried this and it did work, but we soon grew tired of it. And again, if you're outside trying to use a flash to see orbs, what do you think those probably are, Denise? Let me see in the south. Could it possibly be bugs? (laughs) We decided to try our luck across the street at the cemetery. We all felt strange about entering the cemetery, not sure why, it just seemed like a bad idea. So we stood just outside of it by the stone wall surrounding the cemetery. One of the guys with us was just about to snap a picture when I noticed what looked like two lights floating maybe 10 feet over the cemetery. 
I got the attention of the other two guys with me and pointed out the lights. We all stood shocked at what we were seeing. The guy with the camera started to take pictures when we noticed several large, dark figures coming at us at a fairly rapid speed. Now, I don't know if that meant that they were running at them or just floating at them very quickly. We all freaked out and began running to the car. Once we were inside and turned around, the camera guys asked me to pull the car up to the wall for one last picture. Once I reversed the car to the wall, he rolled down the window and we heard the sound of footsteps running through the leaves toward the car. So I guess that answers my question. They were running. I stepped on the gas, too afraid to stick around and find out what it was. So it does make you wonder, were these other people who were hanging around the cemetery who decided to give them a scare? Or were these dark figures some kind of shadow figure there? I don't know, because we didn't know what a fairly rapid speed was. Like, was it humanly rapid or rapid in a way that a regular person wouldn't really have? And what's interesting is he says, we heard the sound of footsteps running through the leaves, but I'm thinking they didn't see them because wouldn't he again repeat, we saw the dark figure still coming at us? So it sounds to me like they no longer could see them, but could still hear them. That would just be my guess. I mean, that's what it appears to because he just stepped on the gas and got the heck out of there. Next, we're going to talk about Hart Island Cemetery. Hart Island Cemetery is located on Hart's Island, which is at the western end of Long Island Sound. The island is fairly small, measuring only a mile long and one quarter of a mile wide. The island has been used for a variety of purposes in its history. A Union Civil War prison camp was set up here. There was once a psychiatric institution and then a tuberculosis sanatorium. A boys' reformatory was here, and the main part that we will be focusing on is that the island is basically a large potter's field that is still used today to bury the poor and the nameless. The city of New York bought the island from Edward Hunter on May 27, 1868. There are several stories as to how the island got its name. One story is that British cartographers had named it Hart Island, spelled H-E-A-R-T, and this was because it was shaped like the organ. Other historians claim that it refers to an English word for stag because deer would migrate to the island from the mainland when ice covered Long Island Sound. The cemetery here is the largest tax-funded cemetery in the world. The first burials were of 20 Union soldiers who died during the American Civil War at the prison camp that was located here. City burials started in 1868 after New York bought the island. The first city burial was of a 24-year-old woman named Louisa Van Slyke. She had died at the charity hospital, and since she had no money, she was taken out to City Cemetery, which is what the Potter's Field was officially known as at the time. The graveyard stretches out over 45 acres, and rather than being dotted with hundreds of headstones like what we're used to seeing in a cemetery, Denise, this one just has a few white markers that denote mass burials of usually about 150 bodies to each mass burial. When we talk about the burials that are on this island, it is very difficult. We love cemeteries because of their historical value and because they honor those who've lived. We have names. We have dates. We have people who are probably coming to take care of the grave, leaving stones, pennies, flowers, other kinds of mementos. Out here at Hart Island, there are not people coming to visit these dead people who are buried here. These people do not have their own headstones, and they were buried in these mass burials. Now, it wasn't that their bodies were just thrown on top of each other like you would think of like a mass burial. They were in coffins, but they were stacked up on top of each other. Many of these mass burials are laid out in two rows, and they're three coffins deep. That's just sad. That many people that they're kind of like the the lost people of the city, like nobody cared. 
And what's really sad about this is we know that it seems like most large cemeteries have their little potter's field kind of off to the corner where these people are put. But this is how many of these people die in New York City, that they can bury them in these mass burials outside of the city on this one island. So that just tells you how many poor or unknown people there are here, or some of them are just unclaimed by their families. What's even sadder, some families had no money, and so even though they would have loved to bury them, they had to have them buried in the potter's field with no marker, so they're just part of the masses, even though they had a family that loved them. Some of the worst stories I heard were these mothers who would lose their babies either in childbirth or who would get sick and they'd take them to a hospital. They'd die there, and I'm assuming these mothers didn't have the money to bury their children, and so they would sign these papers for a quote-unquote city burial, not knowing that that means your child's going to be shipped over to this island and just thrown in a grave with a bunch of other babies. And then later on, when they'd figure this out, they have to go through this whole process of trying to track down, where is my child? And eventually there's going to be lawsuits that come up later on for just this reason, because this is this is not the way you handle this kind of thing. And you need to make sure that when you're telling somebody, I know that you're indigent and you can't afford a proper burial for your baby. So this is what some other people do, at least offer it as kind of an option that they're with full knowledge, know what they're doing. There are two large monuments that have been dedicated to all of the dead that are on Hart Island. And there's a tall white peace monument that was erected after World War II by the New York City prison inmates. And it can be seen on top of what was known as Cemetery Hill. The only identifier on most of the coffins are the dead person's name and an identification number that are carved into the wood. One-tenth of the burials are for John and Jane Doe's. Their bodies are photographed at the morgue before being shipped to the island. These photos are then shown to family members who are missing people to see if any of them can be identified. Each year, about 100 of the does are identified. A body can be disinterred for up to eight years after the burial. Adults are buried in trenches with three sections of 48 to 50 individuals so that disinterment for those identified by family are easier. Infants and children are usually not disinterred, so they are buried in trenches of 1,000, stacked five coffins high and 20 coffins across. That's the one that really gets you. And I think they probably do that because I'm assuming their coffins are smaller, so they just bury them more on top of each other. That just makes me really sad. Yep. Before 1913, the adults and children were buried in mass graves together. A fire in 1977 destroyed many of the burial records, but it is thought that there are a million bodies buried on the island. The potter's field is also used to dispose of amputated body parts, which are placed in boxes labeled limbs. Ceremonies have not been conducted at the burial site since the 1950s, and no individual markers are set except for the first child to die of AIDS in New York City who was buried in isolation. I believe that tombstone says SC on it, like special child. You would think maybe occasionally they could come out and maybe even if you just did one annually have a ceremony for everybody that was buried during the last year. It just, if you think about it, they haven't had a ceremony there since the 1950s. So I don't know. I just, you feel like maybe somebody should go out there and say something over these people every so often. Just, I don't know. We all know you don't have to have a ceremony for this kind of thing, but it just seems like it would be a nice... Well, to make them not so forgotten. Yeah. So who does all this work out there on Hard Island? Because you're thinking, okay, somebody has a really nasty job out here to just have to do all of these mass burials. Well, of course, they're using prison labor, and these guys are coming over from Rikers Island. 
Inmates make around 50 cents an hour. It is the New York City Department of Corrections that maintains all of the burial records now. So they're within the prison system and they maintain the island. I don't know if it was because a lot of pressure was put on them or if they just decided this would be a good idea, but they did create a searchable database back in 2013 and they were able to trace back to at least 1977. So anybody buried before that would be really hard to find. But after that, it's a little bit easier. There's about 66,000 entries on that database. So if you think that there's probably about a million burials here, only 66,000 have any kind of identification. And I don't know how well the coffins hold up when they dig them up, if they're able to still see the identification number and names that are on the outside of the coffins. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm assuming they're putting them in pine boxes. So those are going to decay over time. Probably do a little bit better in New York City than they do down here in Florida. But uh, yeah, so I'm not sure how they, I don't know how they are able to do that, especially when you're stacking people on top of each other. Back in 2009, they did start doing some digital mapping of the trenches with some uh, equipment that could do that kind of thing. Many of these measures were initiated because of an investigation into the handling of those infant burials that we were telling you about because there was a criminal complaint made to the New York State Attorney General's office on April 1st, 2009. So I don't know if there were several family members that came to the Attorney General and said, we need something to to happen here and to stop because these people are not being told or I was not told that this is what was going to happen to my baby. Not sure what all happened there, if it was just one person or a group. The New York City Department of Transportation runs a single ferry to the island from the Fordham Street Pier on City Island. And in order to get on that ferry, it's a pretty intense process. You have to go over to the Department of Corrections website. They have a form you have to fill out. Then they have to approve you. It's certain days and times and you're pretty much under guard while you're out there. I don't know if they're worried if they let other people go out there that you're going to... I don't know what they think people are going to do out there. To me, it would be kind of a nice thing to let people be able to just take the ferry ride over there if they want to, to pay their respects in some way. But you have to be a family member of somebody who's buried on the island in order to be allowed to ride that ferry. Some of the people buried here are rather well known or were at one time. Leo Berinsky was a Jewish playwright, film screenwriter, and director. He died alone in poverty in 1951, so was brought to Heart Island. Don Powell was an American writer who authored hundreds of short stories in a dozen novels. She died of colon cancer in 1965 and donated her body to a medical center. Five years later, the center returned what was left of her remains to her estate, but the executor of her estate refused to reclaim her remains, so she was buried on Hard Island in 1970. Can you imagine you put this person in charge of your estate? I'm assuming it's somebody that she chose, <laughs> and they're like, here's her body back. And they're like, nope, don't want it. We're not going to do anything with it. I was like, really? I wish I could say that that surprises me. Yeah. Bobby Driscoll was a famous child actor who won an Academy Award for a starring role in the 1949's The Window. Bobby was the first child actor put under exclusive contract to Disney Studios. He appeared in their movies Song of the South in 1946 and Treasure Island in 1950. He quit acting in 1957, and his life took a downward spiral. He was arrested multiple times for drugs, forgery, and theft. He died penniless and alone in an abandoned New York tenement. And I saw him in both of those movies. I didn't see him in The Window, but I did see him in Treasure Island and Song of the South. He was the little boy in there that Uncle Remus tells his stories to. There are tales of many restless spirits on this island, and there is no wonder. 
You've got a Civil War prison, which I don't think any of those were nice places to be. You have sanatorium, you have an asylum, you have a prison, you've got a boys reformatory. I mean, this was like a hot spot for paranormal activity. It had all of the boxes checked off here. If you want to have a haunted location, these are the ones. Boom, 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 boom. And then on top of it, you have a huge potter's field. So it is no wonder that there are people who report some weird and unexplained things going on here. And of course, part of the problem with finding out some of these reports is that you don't have people that are out there visiting a lot. This was a local cemetery where people could go in there and investigate all the time, where you didn't have such regulations on who could go there. I'm betting we would have a ton of reports of people having experiences here. We do have quite a few to share, though. Visitors to the island and the inmates working there have reported that eerie feeling that we hear so many times that someone they can't see is watching them. There are several abandoned buildings on the island and shadow figures have been seen moving inside and outside of them. Disembodied whispers are heard in the buildings and also in the cemetery, and they usually sound like children's voices. Investigations of this noise always come up empty. A few visitors have become severely nauseous while visiting, and even a couple have been physically pushed down on the ground. One inmate wrote, I was a prisoner at Rikers Island in the year of 2007 and worked for corrections as a digger at Hearts Island, and it is haunted. I did it for about five months and had one crazy experience I couldn't explain. I wish he would have shared it because I found that quote and I was like, oh, cool. And then he said, I had one crazy experience I couldn't explain. Well, what was it? I know. Maybe we'll have to track him down. So if you are listening, please get a hold of us. People claim that after leaving Heart Island that they have had very vivid dreams of the island. And these dreams usually are of the island years ago. They see the asylum and the prison as though it were new, and what makes it odd is that these buildings are either so decayed or have been torn down, so how do these people know what these buildings look like in their prime? Apparitions are seen in the mist-covered mornings, and if approached, they disappear into the fog. Next up, we have Old Berkeley Cemetery, and this is found in Charles City, Virginia. I wonder if that's anywhere near where we're going to be going, Denise. I don't know. I'll have to look. The graveyard is located across from the Berkeley Plantation, which is said to be Virginia's most historic plantation. And I believe I read that it is the oldest plantation. I think it's even been certified that way. The first official Thanksgiving took place here in 1619. Pretty cool little fun fact there. Yes. The site was known as the Berkeley Hundred at that time. In 1726, the three-story brick Georgian-styled mansion was built and was the birthplace of Benjamin Harrison V, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and Governor of Virginia. The plantation would also be the birthplace of our ninth president, William Henry Harrison. So this is the ancestral home of the Harrisons. As many of you probably know, we also have another Benjamin Harrison who was, I can't remember, 26th president? Don't really look it up. I probably have that wrong. Yeah, if you'll look that up really quick. During the Civil War, Berkeley was occupied by General George McClellan's Union Army, and it was used as a field hospital. It was while the Union Army was here that General Daniel Butterfield composed the familiar tune, Taps. And Diane, I did find out Benjamin Harrison was the 23rd president of the United States from 1889 to 1893. So I missed it by three presidents. So number 23 instead of 26. Pretty close. That's close. I'm impressed. (laughs) 
what an amazing location this is. And I definitely jotted this down for us to do a more thorough look at it in the future because we're just basically talking about the cemetery for this one. This is the history here. You got the first Thanksgiving. You have two of our presidents are connected to this house. And then you have Taps was composed here. And while McClellan was here, President Lincoln came and visited twice. So he's been at this location twice. The Harrison family lost the home during the Civil War, and they were never able to get it back. So then it passed through several owners. And finally, like so many of these gorgeous mansions, it fell into disrepair. Now, I love the story of who is going to buy this property and how it's going to get fixed up. There was a drummer boy who was with McClellan's forces. His name was John Jameson. I think it was 45 years later, he returns to Berkeley. This was in 1907, and he buys the property where he was stationed for two months with McClellan's army. That is so cool. The Jameson family would restore the house. Now, John Jameson didn't get a chance to do that. He passed it on to his son and told him that he hoped that one day he would farm the land and get everything back up and running. Well, his son Malcolm married a girl named Grace, and they did just that. For 70 years, they did extensive restoration, and that can be seen today because you can tour the Berkeley Plantation. They had a wonderful farm there. And the plantation is still owned by the family of Malcolm E. Jameson. So I think that's just amazing. So you have this drummer boy who comes back to the property where he served and his son and his family. It just stays in the family from then on out and they turn it back into this gorgeous place. And it just it's it looks magnificent from what I've seen. The cemetery was established as a final resting place for not only plantation owners and their families, but for members of the original Berkeley colony. People who are buried here include Benjamin Harrison, Grace Jameson, and Malcolm Jameson. The grave markers are very worn and hard to read. Dates on several of them are impossible to see. The names are a historic record of the Harrison family, as most of the burials belong to them. The oldest burial is for John Hugh Noel, who was born in 1630. The most interesting memorial simply states, In Memory of the Unknown Indian. A massacre did take place on the property at one time, and perhaps he died during that and was buried here. The cemetery looks over the James River, and it is here that people claim to see the apparition of, ironically, a red-headed drummer boy of about 12 years of age. He is seen beating his drum, and occasionally people actually hear the beating of the drum. The spirit also likes to look out over the James River. This specter is sometimes accompanied by an older-looking male wearing a Union uniform. He tends to walk the banks of the James River. So this made me wonder if John Jameson had red hair, just because we don't know how our apparitions appear. Did he go back to that time when he was a drummer boy and he loved this place so much that that's what they're seeing? Or is this a drummer boy who was killed? Or it could be a residual or haunting that as well. That too, because it doesn't seem like any of these are intelligent. Apparently, it's not just a cemetery that's haunted. The Berkeley Plantation is haunted as well. And for those of you who are in the area during October, they do offer... Berkeley Twilight Ghost Tours, and the dates this year, they already have them up, are October 12th and 26th, and you have to make reservations. The tour is at 6 p.m. It's about $25 per adult, and children are welcome, I believe, even down to age six, and they're a little bit cheaper. 
And they describe it as, Here are the tales of Berkeley's paranormal activities with a guided tour through the 1726 mansion followed by a lantern-led walk through the gardens, grounds, and cemetery. You will then finish your ghostly experience with Berkeley's challenging corn maze with only the light of your lantern. Oh, that would be (laughs) super freaky. All right, Denise, we have to delay our trip until October so we can do this. Diane, you couldn't handle the cold in October in Virginia. (laughs) I couldn't handle the cold in North Carolina, so I know I can't do it in Virginia. In North we Carolina, were, it was the end. Of, it was like early October, not even two weeks in. I know. Well, October 12th is kind of at the beginning. But yeah, if I was freezing in Asheville, North Carolina in October, I'm sure in Virginia, I would really be freezing. If you guys want to uh, check out more about that tour, you can do that at berkeleyplantation.com. And next up is La Noria Cemetery. The people who lived in the Chilean mining towns of La Noria and Humberstone in the 19th century lived under terrible and gruesome conditions. And Denise, can I just stop you for a minute there? Because I have a really interesting coincidence type story to tell everybody. Sure. So Denise and I have gotten into watching Grace and Frankie on Netflix. If you're not watching that, it stars Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, who I adore. And they are so good in this. So if you're not watching that, you really should. While I was typing up the notes for this, and I'm typing out the people who lived in the Chilean, and at the same time that I am typing Chilean, Lily Tomlin's character is talking to another character, and she's talking about a Chilean soap opera. And as I'm typing Chilean, she said, Chilean soap opera. And I looked at Denise and I hit pause and I went, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she goes, what? And I said, I can't believe this. Out of all the the words in the world that I could be typing right now that she says at the same time, who would have thought Chilean? Well, of course, we would have thought that because she is an intuitive on the show. (laughs) Well, you don't know. Maybe she really is. But she is a hippie intuitive. So she just knew you were going to type that even though you were watching it after taping and everything else. It's just how those things work. I just want to announce to the universe, I don't know what you're trying to tell me, but I'm not going hiking in some Chilean desert somewhere, okay? Not happening. Workers and children were treated like slaves, and many died horrible deaths at the hands of the people who kept them like slaves. It is for this reason that some claim that La Noria and its cemetery are haunted. The painful treatment built up some terrible emotions. Paranormal activity kicks up once the sun goes down. Many of the buildings are ruined, and witnesses to unexplained activity claim to hear disembodied voices and footsteps. Apparitions are seen wandering the streets where human bones are still sometimes found. The bodies of those who died under the slave-like conditions were buried in La Noria Cemetery. This is considered one of the scariest and most disturbing cemeteries in the world. Several of the graves have been dug up and coffins are left open. So there are just skeletons laying in the coffins. Some of them are just sitting up in the cemetery. It's part of the reason why it's one of the most disturbing because these coffins have been disturbed. And the last thing you want to see when you're walking through a cemetery are skeletons. Visitors claim to actually see the dead rise from the graves at sunset. These spirits then walk towards town. The ghosts that are seen in town are thought to have originated in the graveyard. And some call them zombie ghosts for just this reason. I usually always love to see cemeteries. I don't know that I want to visit this one, Diane. Well, not only, again, I'm not going to some Chilean desert somewhere. But yeah, I don't want to walk through a cemetery where... People have been disinterred in this way. And somebody had written, look at what these grave robbers did. And I went, 
these were a bunch of slaves. Why would somebody be disinterring them? It's not like they had anything for you to, to get. It'd be interesting to know if it might be part of their ceremony, sort of like that one, those one people that would every every so many years dig up their family members and redress them, take pictures, and then put them back in their graves. But they at least put them back in their graves. This is, well, let's leave Aunt whoever just laying around. Maybe they were freeing her? Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. It was a stretch. Yeah, I think these were vandals, and they were just desecrating graves. Each of the cemeteries are unique in their own way. We have a ghost town cemetery in the northern Chilean desert, a family cemetery on a Virginia plantation, a large potter's field in New York where the poor and forgotten are piled on top of each other, and a cemetery in a small town that is most like our local cemeteries. They all have one thing in common, and that is the claim that they are haunted. Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Denise, these haunted cemetery episodes are some of our listeners' most favorite. We hear about that all the time. And if you love cemeteries just in general, we do Stones and Bones for our bonus episodes over at Patreon. And our last one actually dropped right before this one, Stones and Bones 5. And this was about a cemetery in Havana, Cuba. And it has some amazing stories with it. And we actually got into talking about Santeria with that one. Yes, we did. We encourage you to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we actually heard from Alyssa about the Sorrel Wheat House. Yes, she says, Hi, girls. I love your podcast so much. I couldn't wait to listen to this episode. I had my own experience there back in 2008. We visit Savannah pretty frequently, and typically we stay near the Sorrel House at the Hilton. I had never been in the house until 2008. I was visiting with just my one-year-old son at the time and was waiting for my parents to come meet us, arriving the next day. I was looking for things to do to keep busy and decided on a daytime ghost tour. My son was a very well-behaved baby, so I could bring him pretty much anywhere that would allow him. We made it through most of the tour, and then my son became fussy. I excused myself so not to disrupt the tour and went into another room. I'm assuming it was a billiard room, I really don't remember, maybe some type of study, and there was a huge portrait of the gentleman that owned the house. My son was settled, so we decided to go back to the tour. Suddenly, my son buried his head in my shoulder and held on for dear life. He couldn't speak yet, but I knew he saw something. I remembered upon entering the room that the door to the hall was open. It was closed now. When I went to open it, it felt like someone was pulling it from the other side. Very scary, never went back. We know those little ones seem to see things and feel things that we don't, so I'm not surprised. I messaged her back and said, we've had our experience with little kids and toddlers and such in haunted locations where they have some kind of experience. Denise, we have only 29 tickets left for Fright Night in the Ville. So if you are going to join us for our live show in Louisville, Kentucky on April 28th, 2018, you need to get on buying your tickets so that you're not left out in the cold. Absolutely. It's going to be a great time. We're really looking forward to it. I am. It's going to be our first live show. And this is on the heels of our very first time of being on a panel at a convention. And this was at the Orlando PodFest Multimedia Expo here in 2018. We talked on a panel about history. 
Our moderator was Liz Kovart, who is the host of Ben Franklin's World. If you're not listening to that podcast, it's excellent. And we also had Ed O'Donnell on our panel, who hosts In the Past Slang. And I've been binging that one. I really enjoy that. And then Jason Hewitt, who does History of the Brand and talks about the history behind brand names and such. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun because each one of us has a very different background, very different experience and very different podcasts, but they're all history. Yes, we had a lot of fun with that. And we had the boys from Is This Adulting staying here at our house with us. So that was fun to get to see Stephen again. And we got to meet Chris for the first time. We had a great time with them. And we also had a great time at the PodFest in general. This was not one that was set up for listeners. Rather, this was for fellow podcasters. And Denise and I went to this because we'd been asked to speak. We didn't really think anything about learning anything. But we said, well, why don't we go to these breakout sessions and listen to what some of these people have to say. And we were there for a lot of the keynote speeches. And there were several of them. And our minds were just blown with the content that we got from this. And we're going to start implementing a lot of new things coming up in this new year. 2018 is going to be History Goes Bumps year, I have a feeling. We have all kinds of fun things that are going to be coming for you guys and events and meetups that we want to do. We have dedicated ourselves to doing at least one event and meetup every single month. So be watching out for those. We've told you about some of them that are coming up. We're going to be adding more to that calendar because we really want to get out and meet you guys in person and interact with you and just have fun. Yes. And and some of those meetups might even be, we have all of our ambassadors at large. And so I know that two of them are actually doing a ghost tour meetup this weekend. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. So we wish we could be at that one, but they're going to be doing our research for our trip next year, Diane. Chris and John did an amazing job. They're the ones who who spearhead the PodFast Multimedia Conference, and we are so excited about them. We love their attitudes and who they are as people. This will definitely probably be a conference in our future. Well, it most definitely will because I just registered for it today. But just the amount of insight and tips and support we got from there just reignited both of us and made us so excited. And the whole trip down to the Keys is going to be amazing. That's coming up this July. And we're doing another conference in in August. So just like Diane already said it, but I'm really excited to hold on to your hats, people, because we are going for a ride. We have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. Our first one up is from the UK. This is Akshay, and he is the host of Blood on the Rocks. If you guys aren't listening to that podcast, that's another one that I've picked up and been binging lately. Really enjoying it. Five stars, good fun. Spent the latter part of my evening burning through a few episodes, and I'm definitely enjoying it so far. One for my subscription list. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate that. And then down to Australia, AJ Grungan. Five stars, brilliant. This is a great podcast for haunted history fans. Great presenters, great history, and great haunted stories. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Jules Havlasek, Dolly Ruther, Tamara Buckley, and thank you to Holly Lockwood for increasing your pledge. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.